So let's pray once again uh, as we come to the word ourselves. Lord, as we come to your word, we acknowledge that uh, we are mere humans, that we are limited in our understanding and our capacity to, to really comprehend the fullness of who you are. So, Father, we ask that uh, by the work of your Holy Spirit this morning, you may reveal to us just a little more of your truth, that we may be encouraged and challenged and lifted up. Amen. So last week, we began our series looking at the life of Joseph with the title, But God Meant It For Good. We saw at the beginning of Joseph's story, his family was very dysfunctional. And it had been for generations. But despite their dysfunction, God had a plan to bless all of the families of all of the nations through them. A plan for the redemption and the restoration of mankind for all who would believe. We saw that as Joseph entered into adulthood, he was amongst uh, his brothers considered a protected species. Have you had a, a, a sibling, a brother or sister that you knew was the protected species of the family? That you couldn't lay a, a finger on because mum and dad would go off their head or mum or dad would go off their head? Well, Joseph's brothers knew that he was his father's protected species. He was favoured above them in every single way. He was given special treatment. And that's where things for Joseph began to take a turn. You see, his brothers plotted to kill him. Then they changed that plan to throw him down a dry well and sell him to the Ishmaelites in order that he would be sold in Egypt as a slave. We were reminded that life for us can often feel like that as well. Like nothing good seems to ever happen, like we're stuck on a merry-go-round and life becomes just a blur. It's hard to see God's good plan in it all. So in the midst of times like this, the encouragement we receive is to dare to stare deep into the heart of God. You remember that from last week? Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. I want to just briefly elaborate on, on what I mean by that before we get into the bulk of today's message. Daring requires courage. You see, it's easiest for us to sit back and to complain to God that He's not doing enough rather than to seek to encounter Him. You see the difference there? A desire to encounter God, to go before God, to stand before His righteousness and His holiness. And if you're anything like me, right there in that image, as you picture yourself standing before God, instead of sitting in and wallowing in our own pain and, and misery and confusion and blaming God, suddenly we're, we're confronted with the reality that if I do that, maybe, just maybe, the faults or the brokenness might lie in me rather than God. So for us to dare to stare deep into the heart of God requires great courage. 
great courage because it's an acknowledgement that there is something in us that needs to change. There's something in us that we need to grow a deeper appreciation of, a deeper understanding of, or we, we simply need to surrender that we just don't have the answer and trust that God does. And that's confronting. That's difficult. That's hard. So we need to dare to stare. But not simply just to stare at God. Because when we're upset, and I don't know if you've found yourself where someone's been upset at you, and uh, there's that saying, if looks could kill. <laughs> um, you get someone staring at you and just glaring at you. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about daring to stare deep into his heart. It means to deeply desire to know God's heart, not to try and align God's heart with my heart. Because isn't that what we often want to do when, when life's not going the way we, we think it should? When things aren't working out the way we want them to work out, don't we tell God what he needs to do in our lives, how he needs to fix it? Well, daring to stare deep into the heart of God is being willing to surrender that and to say, God, I want, to, I want you to align my heart with yours so that I can understand and have peace with your plan in the midst of this situation that just does not make sense to me. So that's what it means to dare to stare deep into the heart of God. This morning, we're continuing with Joseph's story and we'll see that the challenges that he faces just don't seem to let up. You know, if you thought that it was bad enough that he would be hated and reviled by his brothers, that they would try to kill him and then decide to sell him into slavery and cover it up as though he'd been killed by an animal, if you think that that was bad enough, well, the hits just keep on coming. For, for Joseph, it seems like they are just relentless. Have you ever felt like you've been in a relentless situation? Kind of like the bad news just doesn't seem to go away. It's like the cough that you just can't kick. Uh, the virus that just keeps seemed to coming around again and again, causing lockdowns. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> when I was about 10, I think, my family went uh, camping uh, just on the coast at a place called Hastings Point. Uh, it's near the border of Queensland and New South Wales. And uh, I've got, I'm the middle of five kids. I've got an older brother, an older sister and twin younger brothers. And my mum and dad on this one particular day had decided that they needed to go to the shops for something. I can't remember what it was. It might have been to see a doctor or get some medication or get some more food or supplies. And so they took my older brother and they took my younger brothers and left me and my sister with the tent, with our campsite. And as they were gone, this almighty storm hit. And it was, it was gale force winds. It was just the rain thundering down. And here we are, I'm 10, my sister's 12, and... Everything is just starting to lift and to rip. The, the tarp is flapping and the, the tent poles are, are lifting up in the wind. And we just start doing whatever we can. We grab all the extra ropes that we've got and we start pegging down and securing the tarp with everything we can find. We add extra ropes to every single pole. 
and on every rope we add extra pegs so that there is nothing that we can do and and we just sit and we wait once we've done all of that and we're helpless there's nothing more that we can do and the wind keeps blowing and the rain keeps pelting down it was relentless it was out of control and in a lot of ways we felt helpless that's what it's like to be in a relentless situation. Now, let me tell you this. Temptation is just like that. Temptation is a relentless thing as well. It's a constant battle. The temptation to give in. Because you don't have to worry about whatever it is that you're being tempted about. If you just give in and you say, I'm not going to be tempted by this anymore. I'm just going to do it and I'm going to accept it as a part of my life. Then suddenly it's not a problem for you anymore, is it? If you choose to accept whatever the temptation is, whether it be lust or money or gossip, perhaps knocking yourself down, whatever your temptation is, it's unavoidable then life, you know, when, when we give into it, life gets bearable, right? Well, that's how it may seem. But you see, we still suffer the consequences of those actions. Knocking yourself down leads to depression. Lust leads to addiction. Gossip tears down relationships. All these things lead to some sort of self-destruction and result in issues with our health and our well-being, our relationships. But what if temptation didn't determine our actions? What if simply being tempted didn't mean that we had to follow through? What if, what if there was a way to escape the grip of temptation to avoid and avoid the consequences? Stick with me and we'll have a look at how Joseph handled temptation. So we pick up our story in Genesis chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials and captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord, had, Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Here we see a shimmer of God's promised blessings to the nation. Potiphar's role as captain of the guard as one of Pharaoh's officials emphasizes the type of house that Joseph is serving in. You know, this is high aristocracy. Uh, he's in the upper class. The description here of Joseph's time in Potiphar's house is reminiscent of the promised blessings to Abraham for his descendants, which were repeated to Joseph, uh, repeated to Jacob, Joseph's father. 
In Genesis 12, 2 to 3, we read, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 22, 17 to 18, I will surely bless you. And this is to Jacob. <clears throat> And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens uh, and as the sand, sorry, to, to, again to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then in Genesis 28. Uh, a promise passed down to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So here, even here in the midst of slavery, God is demonstrating that he has a greater purpose at play. And on a small scale, we're seeing that God's blessing of Abraham's line has a purpose of an overflowing blessing to others that others should also be blessed. So, so far, despite being away from his father, things aren't too bad for Joseph, but things are about to change. And we pick up the story at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while... His master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice there. Jacob's concern is far greater that he would be sinning against God and his integrity is not, not primarily with Potiphar but with Yahweh. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her heart of integrity standing firm in the face of temptation that's what we see in Joseph one of the things to observe here is that throughout Joseph's life he had a firm understanding that God has a plan of responsibility for his life we see it through his dreams and his visions that we looked at last week while he was with his family and we see it again in his response to Potiphar's wife responsibility is not something he took lightly in order to understand how highly he viewed his responsibility, we need to understand the circumstances around Potiphar's wife's offer. Every society that had slaves was also a society that practiced sexual promiscuity. So there is no surprise that Potiphar's wife would seek to have a sexual relation with a slave of her husband. Remember, from her perspective, he was considered property. It wasn't considered adultery to have sex with a slave. 
And we've seen that by looking at the history of, um, of Abraham with Hagar, Sarah's servant. And we saw that um, with Jacob. He had two wives and, and their servants. And, and so from her perspective, there wasn't a sin. There wasn't anything wrong with it. Uh, and, and as the wife of the master of the household, she probably considered it her rights. But Joseph took a stand because for, for him, before God, it was adultery. Her offer was not so much as a uh, as brash, very forward instruction. It wasn't a request that was, uh, that were, that was acceptable for, for Joseph to turn down if he didn't want to have sex with her. As a slave, he had no rights. Uh, all of it means that, doesn't mean that it would have been okay. Joseph's response, we, we notice, was spontaneous. He didn't need to take time to consider it. And, and when we're dealing with temptation, that is really, really important. Joseph knew immediately what his response should be because he'd already dealt with it in his heart. And he dealt with it in his heart before God. You see, the more we dare to stare deep into the heart of God, the more we're able to recognize those moments of temptation and know immediately what to deal with that temptation. James talks about the dangers of temptation. So James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, um, he was uh, amongst uh, the disciples, uh, particularly in the early church in Jerusalem. And he writes this in James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation takes hold when we give it a second thought, when you allow that thought to grow, to take seed in your mind. Though the initial thought itself is not sin, it's the entertainment of that thought that is Picture it this way, if, if that temptation comes knocking on your door, to kick it off your porch is not sin. But to open your door and to welcome it in, to sit down with it and to consult with it, that's where sin starts. That's where temptation gets a hole and gets a grip. Joseph shows us that the way to deal with temptation is to not entertain it, but to get rid of it straight away. But not thinking about something is not easy. For example, here's something that I want you to do for me. Don't think about pink elephants. And what are you thinking about? Pink elephants, right? It's so easy for us to sow a thought. And, and that's why um, when I was a teacher, we used to tell kids to just walk instead of saying, don't run. Because you're planting a seed in their, their mind. You know, I, I want them to think about what is beneficial. What is, what is the healthy thing, the good thing, the appropriate thing. 
in again James in chapter 4 of James 7 to 10 submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee come near to God and he will come near to you dare to stare deep into the heart of God there it is James chapter 4 verse 8 in Nick's revised version Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So, so that there is an encouragement there for us to resist temptation, to resist the devil. But how do we do that? How, how do we not think about something that is temptation? How do we not entertain those thoughts those feelings, Paul gives us some fantastic suggestion in Philippians 4 verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Think about it this way. If temptation is a fire hose open, fully aimed right at you, everything about the character and nature and heart of God is the rope that we need to cling on to keep our footing firm. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. How do we confront temptation? How do we know how to resist God? Dare resist temptation. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. Think about everything that is excellent and praiseworthy, holy and righteous, everything that is pure. That is how we are able to say no to temptation and yes to the things of God. Joseph's arguments to Potiphar's wife as to why it is inappropriate. It's interesting. He, he first points out the abuse of trust it would be to his master. And secondly, he points out that in the pagan legal system, adultery in this case would have been a, a private injury, an affront to her husband. Finally, he identifies the foundation of his morality in God's will, not the conventions of the majority or the societal norms. First, this is an affront to your husband and the trust that he has given me. And secondly, more importantly, he says, I dare not sin against the Lord my God. Continuing on then uh, in Genesis 39, verse 11. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Potiphar's wife caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in his hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed when he heard me scream for help. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. 
And then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you bought, brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was in there, in the prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph did what was right and respectful. He did what was good and it got him thrown in prison. You know, as Christians, we should not be surprised when the world riles against us. When we suffer on the account of those who are broken and hurting and they lash out at us. Our cry is simply, should not simply be, but I have done nothing wrong. Because that was not the cry when Jesus hung on the cross. The more we dare to stare deep into the heart of God, the more we see that our, our response is to carry the burden of the lost to trust that God will be our vindication and to understand God's justice. We'll get to that in a minute. God continued to be with Joseph despite the, the fact that he'd done nothing wrong, despite that things got worse. God is always with us. He's always there to encourage us and to hold us steady if we are willing to surrender ourselves to him time and again. God was with Joseph and he prospered in Potiphar's house. And here, despite him being moved on, God's plan will not be thwarted. God plans to use Joseph in a very important, significant way. And he just uses this new situation in a new way. We see at the end of Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. This moment where through all of his life, Joseph has seen these ups and downs and seen God's hand upon him. Confronted face to face with the brothers who sold him into slavery. And caused him all the pain. He declared to them this. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. But God meant it for good. God never promised that following him, being in a relationship with him, would stop life from being difficult. He never promised that this side of eternity, we would be free free from temptation, free from tough times and free from persecution. But he does promise that he has a greater purpose for good in all of our situations, in all of our circumstances. 
in some of Moses' final words to the Israelites as they were about to prepare to enter into the promised land. He says, after Joseph's life and after several hundred years in slavery in Egypt as the Hebrew nation, <clears throat> Moses had led them into the wilderness, out of Egypt. He took them to the promised land which they refused to enter because the challenge seemed too great for them and they were not willing to trust God. So they wandered for 40 years in the desert. And that generation who refused to take possession of God's promises died off so that the second generation, the next generation about to, to step forth into God's plan to take hold of the promised land. This is what, what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, the great giants that, that, that awaited them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Kind of very reminiscent of Psalm 20 verse 7, isn't it? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We looked at that purpose last week. We, we, we spelled it out. That purpose is the redemption and restoration of God's creation, the redemption and the forgiveness of mankind for all who would believe. The redemption that is achieved through Christ on the cross, fulfilling the law. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. Throughout all of Joseph's ordeals, He's holding on to God's justice. Not that, that he should, in, in that moment, see a balanced, restored, uh, uh, to see balance restored and injustice made right, but that God is working on a much bigger scale, a much bigger plan. What is justice? That we should seek re revenge? for a wrongdoing, that we should seek recompense, payment in, in response to what's been done to us? Is that our right? What if justice was more than just a punishment served out to those who deserve it? What if there's more to justice than that? What if justice, God's design for justice was about redemption and forgiveness? One of the most powerful verses that I found in the Bible is this. You see, as we dare to stare deep into the heart of God, we're confronted with the way we understand things from a worldly perspective with how God has created and designed things and, and in His nature designed things. And we look at something like the law and we look at something like justice and we say it's about getting paid back for what was done to me. But that's 
not how God defines justice. That's not how God defines the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to reveal to us God's righteousness and holiness so that we should know how far we'd fallen from it. To know that we could never meet the requirement of the law. And so Jesus came to fulfill it, to fulfill the obligations under the law, the requirements under the law on our behalf. And he did that by the shedding of his blood on the cross. But justice, justice is not about revenge. It's not about punishment primarily. First and foremost, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 tells us this. Therefore, the Lord waits gracious to be patient, uh, wait patiently to be gracious to you. Therefore, the Lord waits patiently to be gracious to you, and therefore exalts Himself to show mercy to you, because He is a God of justice. Because He is a God of justice. So powerful when we understand that God's justice is focused on about being patient in order to administer grace and mercy. We see that God's plan is not about holding us under his thumb. It's not about that, that holy, righteous retribution just waiting to be rained down upon us. No, God is waiting to rain down grace and forgiveness for all who would, would acknowledge their sinfulness, all who would humble themselves before Him, all who would believe and follow Him. When we dare to stare deep into the heart of God, our emotions, our preconceived ideas are challenged. This is an essential part of us being transformed ever more increasingly into His likeness to better understand God's righteous, holy ways. Therefore, in seeking justice, our role is not to judge or condemn, but to pursue God's right way, to restore justice by living in mercy and compassion, to be the embodiment of God's blessing to the nations, the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection, the temptation for us, is to respond an eye for an eye. The temptation for us is to conform to the patterns of the world because it's easy and it's comfortable. But if we are willing to dare to stare deep into God's heart, to wrestle with His heart, to desire to know it and to have it known within our hearts, justice brings on a whole new meaning. Joseph demonstrates that true justice, God's justice, comes by trusting in God's bigger vision. True justice will come. In Isaiah 30, 18, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. That's what it says. Blessed are those who wait for him. God's justice is waiting. We are in a time now where God's kingdom has come with Jesus, yet it's not quite yet. We don't see that the fullness of its glory in eternity until Jesus returns again. 
in this time of waiting for Jesus' return, waiting for the culmination of God's kingdom in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its holiness and righteousness. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for the lost to become found because God is a God who waits patiently to be gracious because there will come a time, there is coming a time where he will say, for three transgressions of my world and for four, I will no longer forgive these sinful generations. It's a reference back to our Amos series where the judgment on Israel was meted out with this uh, pattern of, of for three and for four. The completeness of time and amongst the whole of the people. Three being the completeness of time, like three days, Jonah was in the, the belly of the, the fish, whale, fish. Um, for three days, Jesus was in the tomb. This completeness of time, we see the, the pattern that God uses. And four, the four corners of the world, the four directions, the four winds, represents the entirety, the wholeness of, of the people. There will come a time where God has waited and his waiting is finished. And we all will stand before him on that judgment day. Where grace has been administered. And those who have refused his grace will receive their judgment. The wages of their sin. So we trust like Joseph. In the midst of our, our temptation, in the midst of our, our trials, that God has a, a bigger plan, a greater plan, a longer plan than us. He sees further ahead than we see. And when we feel like we're being treated unjustly, when we feel like life doesn't make sense, we trust that God does. God's got a plan. And how can we deal with that? But to dare to stare deep into the heart of God. When we're wrestling with the, the internal temptations within us, how do we deal with that? Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. And I promise you, there you will find peace. There you will find hope. And there you will find the strength. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so grateful that you have laid before us the testimonies of millennia of your faithfulness. Lord, that we are, we are so grateful to be able to look upon Joseph's life and to see that, that while his challenges and trials were relentless, your grace and your mercy and your hand upon him was persistent to overcome. Lord, you know our, our trials, you know our struggles, you know our hurt and our pain. You know the bitterness that wells up within us, Lord. The hurt that we endure, the hurt that we carry with us. Lord, our prayer this morning is that we might have the courage to dare to stare deep into your heart. To know your heart for those that have hurt us. To know your heart for the lost, to know how much 
you deeply care for us, to know how your hand is upon us and to know your plan is at work. Lord, bless us this week, we pray. Amen.